Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, for all you have done, and I'm about, I will shortly discharge you from your further service as jurors in the matter. But firstly, I want to thank you for all you have done in the case and your service to the court. It's interesting of my last jury, but every jury I have, I think, is better than every one I've had before, and I say the same to you. It, I'm just amazed how we can bring together 12 members of the community who can go about their work in the way each and every one of you have done so. That's Justice Kay, who usually sits in the Court of Appeal, addressing the jury at the end of a five-week murder trial. The Court and I are very conscious of the fact that we ask an enormous amount of jurors. There's no doubt about that. It's a lot of work. We take you away from your own lives, uh, from your families, from your work and from your recreation and ask you really to devote yourselves to the uh, close detail of cases we do. The jury had just found a woman guilty of murder and her co-accused guilty of attempted murder. They were later sentenced to 30 years and 12 and a half years in prison, respectively. It's a very, very onerous responsibility that is cast on the shoulders of each of you. It's a painful responsibility, and I don't think there's any doubt about it, that in peacetime it's the most onerous responsibility this country can place on the shoulders of its individuals. They are deciding trials in Victorian courtrooms every day. And for a lot of people, they're the only direct interaction they'll ever have with the courts. In fact, if you're on the electoral roll, there's a decent chance that one day, it will be your turn to join them. This episode is about juries. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. And they shall be heard. And they shall be heard. Truth. And nothing but the truth. Nothing, 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 nothing but the truth. I'm Evan Martin. This is Gertie's Law. It may be hard to believe that 12 randomly selected Australians, often with no experience in or knowledge of the law, are the best people to pass judgment on a fellow human. But the jury system has forever been one of the most important aspects of the Victorian justice system. Madam Foreperson and members of the jury, have you agreed upon your verdict? We have. Do you find the accused, John Smith, guilty or not guilty of the charge of manslaughter? Guilty. Juries have existed for centuries, with many variations across the globe. Trials in ancient Athens were often heard before a jury of hundreds of citizens. However, it's the Magna Carta, published in 13th century England, which is widely credited as the foundation of the trial by jury system. But why do we still have juries? Why not leave the hard decisions to judges? Juries are vital to the administration of justice because they lead to community acceptance of verdicts, um, particularly in relation to the most serious offences, which cause the public most concern, that is violent offences, sexual offences, drug offences, etc. Andrea Petrie is an academic and former court reporter. You know, they involve members of the community in the legal process and because they're playing a role, it is considered that decisions are more likely to be accepted, verdicts are more likely to be accepted if jurors, like members of the community, have played a part. 
at the moment we we're in this atmosphere where there is this distrust of institutions. Justice Kidd is chief judge of the county court and also a judge of the Supreme Court. Um, there are probably many complex reasons why that distrust seems to have increased in recent times. I've got no doubt that the advent of social media and the internet um, and some of the uh, vitriolic and misinformed commentary that goes on has contributed to that mistrust. Uh, and that's to me, reinforces why it's so important to maintain the jury system because... Uh, that's an opportunity of ongoing connection and engagement with the community at a time when we need it most. Ultimately, the Victorian justice system is a human system and it's inevitable that mistakes will be made on occasion. Do they get it wrong from time to time? Well, the answer is yes. Of course, the alternative to the uh, jury system would be to have a judge alone uh, judge somebody. Uh, I have no doubt that judges sitting alone would acquit themselves superbly with that task. But judges are human as well, and judges also make mistakes. So simply because juries make mistakes is not a good reason to say that we shouldn't use juries, but we should use judges. Justice Whelan was a judge in the criminal division and now sits in the Court of Appeal. I think group decisions are more reliable than individual ones, by and large. Uh, the cases we do here being murder, substantial drug trafficking, they're often about issues that uh, ordinary members of the public are pretty capable to decide. They know as much about the sort of problems that can lead to a murder as judges do. Here's Justice Kay again, continuing his address to the jury. The very best and fairest method of deciding cases like this is to bring together juries that comprise 12 men and women from our community drawn at random, who have no connection to the case, and who can bring into this court their life experience, their fair judgment and their good sense, as you each have done in this case. Those qualities are are invaluable to our system of justice. You've brought into court Australia's very best natural asset as people, and you've applied yourselves accordingly. It simply is an irreplaceable method we have, and I think it's the greatest insurance we have that the correct verdicts are delivered in each case. Reaching the correct verdict. It's the one job the jury has, and it's perhaps the most important function of the court. Lives are constantly at stake here, so it's understandable why, in criminal trials, the burden of proof is so high. Justice Hollingworth, Principal Judge of the Criminal Division. Our legal system has always been premised in modern times, on the assumption that it's better that 10 guilty men or women go free than that one innocent man or woman is wrongfully convicted. In a criminal trial, to come to a guilty verdict, the jury needs to unanimously believe beyond reasonable doubt that the accused committed the crime. Take this case from 1899, where a man was accused of assaulting an eight-year-old girl. After deliberating for two hours, the jury returned a verdict of not guilty. On hearing the decision, the accused man became hysterical. He first laughed and shouted and then burst into tears. Suddenly, he leaned over the dock and said to the jury, Thank you, gentlemen of the jury. I'm much obliged to you. You've brought in a a true bill of justice. Justice A. Beckett, the judge presiding over the trial, addressed the accused. As you have made a remark, let me tell you that it is a highly indecent thing for prisoners to thank the jury for what they consider their duty. In your case, 
The jury probably thought that although they could not believe you on your oath, and although you were a ruffian on your own showing, there was not sufficient evidence to satisfy them of what they probably believed you did, and have therefore conscientiously brought in this verdict. They have felt it to be their duty not being quite certain of your guilt. I will order your release, which places you in a position to assault other children, but the verdict is no testimony of your character. It simply means that the jury had not sufficient facts before them to pronounce you guilty. If I have wrongly interpreted the verdict of the jury, they, through their foreman, will say so. But I take it that I am right in assuming that for the reasons indicated they acquitted you? Quite right, Your Honour. Thank you. He turned back to the accused man. It is because you ventured to thank the jury for the verdict, which, in my opinion, is an indecent exhibition, that I felt bound to make these remarks. Leave the court, sir. You are disgraced, though not convicted. Beyond reasonable doubt. It's a phrase we're all familiar with, especially if you've ever watched a courtroom drama on TV. But what does it actually mean? Trial Judge Justice Macaulay works with juries in both the criminal and common law divisions. Beyond reasonable doubt means beyond reasonable doubt, and uh, as often as judges have tried to uh, uh, tease that out with using other words, you end up getting into strife for um, altering the standard. The Jury's Directions Act states that judges can elaborate on the term if asked by the jury. However, they are rather limited in how they do so. They can refer to the presumption of innocence and the prosecution's obligation to prove that the accused is guilty. Maybe they'll explain that a belief of probable or very likely guilt is not sufficient. Or that it's almost impossible to prove anything with absolute certainty when reconstructing past events. And the prosecution doesn't have to do so. I guess when you say to people you, you shouldn't decide in favour of the prosecution uh, unless you've ex- excluded reasonable doubts, if, or put another way, if you maintain a reasonable doubt as to whether the person did it or didn't do it, um, then you must acquit them. Uh, different people could construe those words in slightly variable ways. But they are English words. We are stuck with language as the tools which we use to communicate things and as to set standards. And experience has taught us, I think, that we ought not to play around with those words for better or for worse. It's emphasised and emphasised and emphasised both by the judge and by the lawyers um, to the jurors and... There's 12 of them, and I think that creates an innate sense of discipline amongst them, and they must all agree. So it's quite a disciplined process. Juries sometimes decide common law cases too. Justice Bell of the Trial Division. Uh, The role of a jury uh, in a civil case and a criminal case is actually the same, to determine what the facts of the case are. But there is a a fundamental difference. Uh, The the role of the jury in a criminal case is to determine whether the jury is satisfied beyond reasonable doubt of the guilt uh, of the accused, uh, and the onus of establishing uh, that guilt beyond reasonable doubt is on the prosecution. The civil jury's responsibility uh, is to determine whether uh, on the balance of probabilities 
for example, uh, the, uh, the injury was caused by the employer. Uh, and the onus of, uh, of proving that is upon uh, the worker in that kind of case. So the, uh, the standard of proof in a criminal trial is the highest known to the law. Uh, it's beyond reasonable doubt. The standard of proof in a, in a uh, civil case uh, is lower, uh, and it's uh, the balance of probabilities. That difference is fundamental. Justice Macaulay, if you reach a conclusion that it's more probable than not that X went through the red tra- a traffic light when it was red, then for the purpose of the law, he went through a traffic light that was red. Um, in fact, if you allow for a 49% possibility that he didn't, of course he may not have. Uh, but the law says in civil cases, it will be satisfied on the balance of probabilities and when it is, it happened, uh, as a matter of fact. We tell jurors it's just like the uh, scales and if you tip something uh, on one side that tips the scales just ever so slightly in favour of one direction, that's um, more probable than not. I don't know how jurors do it, but um, I for myself and I think other judges uh, are looking for that sense of persuasion in yourself um, on the balance of probabilities as to what is more probable than not. Another challenge for jurors can be leaving their sympathy at home. In a a circuit case I did, I said to my associates after I had finished my charge and sent the jury off to deliberate, we will find out from this jury whether they're thinking with their head or thinking with their heart, because um, your emotional response would go in one direction, but your intellectual, rational response would go in the opposite direction. It involved a terrible injury to a young child from dogs, a dog attack, in circumstances where she had gotten from one side of her back, from her offence to another, gone from her backyard to the neighbour's backyard and had been attacked by the dogs. Um, awful injuries, everyone felt terrible. Uh, but the legal question was whether the landlord of the next door premises could be held to blame for what had occurred and as I say I think after all of the evidence your your heart would have said oh, please find a way to give the little girl some damages um, but your head would have said look uh, it's not it's not really a, a proper legal case against the landlord and they came back with what I would call the intellectual rational response um, So that was sort of heartening, really. So how does one end up on a jury? I've never sat on one, and I don't think many of my family or friends have either. I put this to Paul Dole, the jury's commissioner. This is your the conspiracy theory you'd like me to. uh, um, I have I have been I have confirmed with the Victorian Electoral Commissioner that their algorithm that randomly selects people from the electoral roll is as random as an algorithm would be. The, the, the IT geeks tell me that you can't, nothing is, can be truly random, but you can get darn close. We sit in the office of the county court building. A baseball sits on the shelf behind us alongside multiple framed photos of Bruce Springsteen. We get into these conversations with, 
with citizens. It's hilarious. You know, they've done their own research. You know, they'll show up with a summons and say, "Well, I surveyed my workforce. You know, and four, four, four people between the age of eighteen and thirty-five have been selected, and eight haven't. And barrels lived for a hundred years and never been selected. And uh, so, are you you're picking on me? And so, the answer to that question is, uh, every every time we ask for ten thousand names in Melbourne, there's probably three million people on that electoral roll. So you can do the math. Some people play Tats Lotto all their lives and don't win. And some people win Tats Lotto twice or three times. And that's because each time we go into the bucket, you've got the same chance as you did the last time. And that's all I know about random theory. When lightning does strike, your name is called and you're given a date. You head to the courts and you enter the jury pool. The jury pool is in the pool room. And from that group of people, maybe 50, 100, 200 people, um, we will randomly select small subsets called panels to go into courtrooms. You know, 30 go there, 30 go there, 40 go there kind of thing. So uh, once they're in the courtroom, it's at that point the judge will tell the that panel what the trial's about. Uh, she will say, um, my name is Justice Smith. These are my staff. These are the lawyers. I'll tell you a little bit about what's, what's going on here. That person in the back of the room has been accused of this. They'll read out the list of witnesses that are coming. Then the judge will say, so now knowing all that, which isn't everything, but just a bit about the trial and who's involved, I'll offer you an opportunity to apply to be excused. Jury members aren't allowed to know anybody involved in the trial, for obvious reasons, which can be problematic when impanelling a jury in a regional town. Justice Hollingworth again. I must say, in a country town, you do get those sorts of interconnectedness that somebody lived down the road from or their mother plays in the same bowls club as someone or other. Um, The other interesting thing, particularly in a country town, is how often uh, witnesses are known only by their nicknames. I've had many cases in country towns where you have to inquire as to whether jurors know someone and they don't know you, for instance, as Dave Smith. They only know you as Chooker or Ferret or whatever your nickname happens to be. And so I must say, when we're impaling juries in a country town, I make sure that I've got all the nicknames of prospective witnesses as well as their legal names because it is quite remarkable uh, the fact that someone's full name is is often not known by prospective jurors. Being on a jury can be a big commitment. It might take you away from your work and your family for weeks, occasionally months. So before a jury is impaneled, each prospective juror is given a chance to excuse themselves. Serving on a jury is one of the most important civic duties one can perform. The entire justice system relies on it. But judges still hear some pretty creative excuses to get out of it. Uh, I I had a, a case recently in circuit where um, there were people getting up and giving their excuses for why they shouldn't be on the jury. I had a fellow who got into the witness box. He was a big, burly sort of a fellow with a gruff voice, and he said, Well, Your Honour, uh, uh, about 10 years ago I was a taxi driver. I said, Right. And he said, I, I got a job to take a, a bloke from the hotel to the airport. He was a judge. I said, right. I think it might have been you. <laughs> I said, no, I don't think it was me. But um, He was a very entertaining fellow. So he remained in the panel. He didn't ultimately get on the jury. But I thought um, 10 years ago, a possible taxi ride in, in, a, in a car was uh, stretching it a bit. 
There are many valid excuses for not serving or at least deferring your jury service though. Here are some examples. There's age. There is no upper age limit, but if you're advanced age, uh, if you want to be excused, you ask and you're out without question. There's living distance from the court. If you live more than 50 kilometers away from the court or 60 kilometers away from a regional court. But you have to apply to be excused. You, you could live 100 kilometers away and if you're happy to drive, we're happy to have you. There's unnecessary hardship financial or otherwise. Those are assessed on a case-by-case -case basis. So if you work in a small business or you're self-employed and being here on jury service means you're gonna lose money, then you can apply to be excused if you take care of children during business hours or, or, or you're unwell or any personal reason you think um, you would like to apply to be excused for, we'll assess that. Uh, if you're busy at work, will defer you to another time. Uh, you know, so work in, in and of itself is not a, a reason to be excused because the employer is obliged to release you and make up your pay to what you would have been. Personal history. Judges will excuse people who apply to them who have themselves um, got some history. You know? So if, if it's a sexual offending trial and a person themselves have been a victim or, or, or whatever, the judges will certainly allow people to be excused for that reason. There are also people who are not allowed to serve on juries including those convicted of certain offences and people in particular professions. There's only a, a very narrow group of ineligible occupations, you know, the governor, judges, police officers, anybody involved in criminal or penal administration. It used to be that a lot of occupations, teachers and pilots and priests and public servants, uh, were not eligible for jury service, but now um, it's, it's a very narrow group of occupations. Back to the impanelment. 30 people have been sent from the pool room to the courtroom, and let's assume the judge has excused three people. So now the panel is down to 27. The 27 names um, on little cards go into a box. The judge's associate shakes it up and pulls out a card and reads the number and the occupation. Juror number 49, dental nurse. Uh, and that person is then goes to the walk, gets up and walks towards the jury box and in the time that that person uh, leaves his or her chair in the, in, the, in the public area of the court and makes their way and sits down in the box, the accused person can challenge that prospective juror. Challenges allow the accused person to effectively veto the potential juror from sitting on the jury. They can challenge up to three people without showing any cause. Traditionally, there's a lot of, of um, amateur psychology um, practiced by lawyers about the way juries think and work. Justice Dixon is the principal judge of the Common Law Division. It uh, can be amusing at times. I, I'm sure the psychologist would find it amusing, but uh, uh, it's often just kind of a folklore impression about who you should have on a jury and who you shouldn't have on a jury, and, and they often don't work. Lawyers are very committed to these ideas and they work actively in jury selection to put them, into, put them into place. The Law Reform Commission did some research around this and found that over four years, women were challenged more than men at a rate of two to one. Paul Dore. The thinking around that is that it's probably less to do with gender and more to do with occupation. If, if you were in what we call the caring occupation, a, a nurse, a teacher, a childcare worker, psychologist, social worker, those sort of occupations, you were more likely to be challenged, no matter if you were a man or a woman. So it's probably likely that it's just that 
women are more represented in those occupations, nurses and teachers and that sort of thing. Once you have 12 people in the jury box, that's the jury for the duration of the trial. Juries in common law trials are made up of only six people. The impanelment process is also a little different, and I can't be the only one reminded of the horrors of a schoolyard pick. They, they get to the courtroom in the same way, but once they're in the courtroom and the judge tells them a little bit, exactly as in a criminal trial, a little bit about the trial and who's involved. But then what they do is they pull out 12 names and that those people stand up. And then the barristers turn around and look at those 12 people standing up and they've got a, they've got a, a list of the panel numbers in the occupation. And then they strike out, the first barrister strikes out three, and then the second strikes out three, and they're left with six, and then those six are on the jury. Once the jury has been impaneled, the trial begins almost immediately. Justice Hollingworth. You can see on day one, when the jury are first selected, most of them have that, oh my goodness, how did I end up here look. They're a bit startled, they're not sure they want to be here. They are just ordinary members of the community who've been brought into the criminal justice system with no previous exposure, have been exposed to things that they've probably never encountered in their life and are asked to make extraordinarily difficult decisions on behalf of the community. And then over the course of the next day or two, you see them starting to understand the seriousness of their role and to really uh, grow into it and to become engaged. And by the end of a trial, I usually have quite... um, a, a strong affection for, for my jury. Uh, I think, by and large, they do a remarkable job. When you've sat uh, in jury trials, like we obviously did as practitioners and then as judges... Chief Judge Peter Kidd. What becomes apparent to you over the course of a trial is just how focused the jury becomes on the evidence and the issues in the trial as the trial develops. And it's apparent to the participants in the trial, that as those trials develop and as those issues become more intense, that whatever the jury's, the juror was thinking beforehand or whatever else is going on outside the courtroom just pales into insignificance. The jury attends every day of the trial until it's complete. If even one jury member is sick or can't make it to court, the trial is adjourned. In the early days of the court, juries were sequestered and housed in the court while they reached their verdict. Back in the old days, in this building, they used to put them up in the dome here in the library. Joanne Boyd is one of the court's archivists. So there was bunk beds, apparently, and there was little kitchenettes. But they used to have to be careful because they used to have to make sure that you were quite fit and healthy because there was no lifts in the building and you were climbing a lot of stairs to get up into the dome. And I can only think that they must have been hot in the summer and cold in the winter. There are fireplaces around, so they must have had to have stoked their own fires as well. But what that meant was that for many years, that was the excuse used for not using women on juries. So women got the vote, as we know, in Victoria in 1908, but they didn't appear on a jury until the 19, late 1960s. And there was a lot of, you know, where are we going to put them if we have to sequester them? And there was just a huge reluctance to do it. And the accommodation was used as the excuse, but I think that's all it was, an excuse. 
Joan Rosanoff QC, the first female QC, she was agitating for women to be on the juries back in the 1940s. Um, Joan Rosanoff's practice is mainly what we now call family law. She was a well-known divorce lawyer. And I think, and sometimes they used to have juries on divorces. So I think that she thought that, not that it would necessarily give her clients a better status, but I think she understood that you have to have all voices and opinions within society rather than just white males making a decision. The practice of sequestering a jury has largely died out in Australia. Nowadays, jurors typically arrive at the court at 10am each day and leave around 430 They have a few breaks, but spend the majority of their time in the jury box, watching and listening to the presented evidence. When I started working here, my first impression was just how slow everything moved in the courtroom. Evidence is worked through methodically. Every small detail is scrutinised. And it makes sense. Not only is a lot at stake, but the evidence can be complicated really complicated. There are challenges with that. Uh, Some expert evidence, um, particularly uh, forensic evidence of a scientific nature or medical evidence, um, is um, incredibly challenging for juries to understand. Justice Champion of the Criminal Division. Not just in forensic evidence of a a, um, human nature, but Uh, evidence to do with computers, um, cyberspace, uh, or complicated fraud cases. Um, This evidence is getting more complicated uh, as the years go by, so the challenge for the courts will be to be able to distill that into something that is understandable uh, to people who are on juries, who are, after all, uh, we regard as lay people. Remember, on a jury, a Rhodes Scholar could be sitting next to a person with little or no education. And they're both doing the same job. Justice Macaulay. In the civil area, one of the ways in which that can be um, dealt with, ultimately, is for a judge to accede to an application to take the matter away from the jury and have the judge decide the whole case because the technical material is so difficult. Um, In the criminal area, that, that... solution doesn't really arise. So the judge's challenge and the party's challenge is to be able to present difficult things, uh, not by dumbing it down, but present difficult things in a way that's um, methodical and understandable and a layperson can come up with a reliable answer. Um, The more technical it gets, the more difficult that gets. Paul Dore doesn't seem too concerned. So there's often a, talk, a worry, both, and, and some academics look at this, about whether, you know, you need, should jurors, citizens, be uh, used as jurors in trials where there's complex forensic evidence or complex, you know. And I guess the argument is, well, um, would you want, if it was a fraud trial, would you are you better off with 12 people who are just, you know, average Victorian citizens and having the judge and the lawyers and the expert witnesses explain the evidence in a way that everybody understands, or are you better off having 12 forensic accountants on the jury? I don't think you want 12 experts. You, you know, I, there's enough experts in the courtroom arguing. I don't think you'd want 12 experts in the jury. And you certainly don't need to know legal terms or technical terms. That's for the, for the lawyers and the judges to explain to people uh, in court. The jury system is facing another challenge. 
social media. Most people are on it multiple times a day, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or Snapchat. It's how a lot of us get our news and information. In order to protect the presumption of innocence and keep the jury system operative, we have to tell people to stay off it. But that's easier said than done. I'm Andrea Petrie. In 2015, I, as part of my Masters of Criminology that I was studying at Melbourne University, completed a minor thesis about Victorian criminal judges' attitudes towards and experiences of internet-related juror misconduct. We sat down next to Andrea's bookshelf, overflowing with true crime novels and books on the JFK assassination. I had attended a, a conference where a judge spoke about this huge problem that was wreaking havoc in courts across the world where jurors were going online to investigate aspects of the case they were sitting on or they were getting on social media and discussing what had been said in court, the evidence they'd heard. Of course, judges were very, very concerned about it because um, one of the most important aspects of juries' involvements in trials is that they base their verdict on the evidence that is presented in court and not influenced by anything or anyone from the outside. Now, this is very different to how we've been taught to learn, like when we're at school um, or when you're making any decision in life, you find out as much information you can about the issue or the topic in question and you sort of weigh up the, the pros and cons and then you make a decision which you believe is the best decision. But when you're on a jury, you're not making a decision on how accurate something is. You're weighing up um, according to you know, what is just, according to the evidence, as opposed to all of the available information, which is why a lot of jurors really struggle uh, when they're told you're not allowed to go online. With the click of a few buttons on our smartphone, and most people have smartphones, uh, we can find out anything in the digital age. You just need to type something into a search engine, a name, a legal term, uh, you know, anything, and within seconds we are presented with lists and lists of information uh, or social media profiles. So that means that we can be influenced on what we read, which might be completely irrelevant to the case. It could be legislation in a completely different state or, or different country, and that could influence how we uh, or how a jury decides something. Um, now, that's hardly fair on the accused person, is it? While doing your own research is not allowed, it often is well-intentioned. Justice Dixon. It's a natural it's a natural thing to do. All judges face the same thing when they first get appointed. They're used to being 
barristers or solicitors and being involved in the, the process of preparing, investigating, getting the dispute ready for trial. But once you become a judge, you, you, you take what is presented in court and you resolve the dispute on that basis. You don't need to go beyond it. When you tell them to stay away from the internet, to stay away from their devices, to just decide the case on what they hear in the court, um, overwhelmingly they, they take that on board and that's what they do. There are those who don't, but the system tends to police itself as well. Um, the 12 jurors will will say to the one who's been looking something up on their iPad overnight, well, the judge told us we can't do that. Um, so, you know, and they'll, they'll isolate that person to some extent, perhaps even report them to the judge. Depending on the severity of the misconduct, juries can be dismissed for conducting outside research. Paul Dore remembers one particular case. Six-week trial, and on the first day of deliberations, there were three or four jurors already in the deliberation room when the fifth person showed up with reams of paper printed off the internet on every theory ever written on post-traumatic stress syndrome and repressed memories. And some of that might have been academically sound, bits of peer-reviewed um, research, and some of it might have been written by 40-year-old men who live in their mother's basement, right? And the internet doesn't know the difference, and it's not been contested. So the judge brought in each of those jurors one at a time, and by the third or fourth person said, you've all seen enough material that now does not give the person in the back of the room, the accused person, a fair trial. So no choice but to discharge the entire jury and start all over. And he went home that night. He told me he did the math. He figures it was about a million dollars in taxpayers' money alone. But, you know, forget the money, says the public servant. It's more the, um, you know, everybody had to go through it again. The complainant, the witnesses, the judge, the judge's staff, 12 new jurors, and the accused guy who could have been not guilty. Social media can create other issues too. Andrea Petrie again. So arguably the most high-profile example of internet-related juror misconduct was in the UK where a juror by the name of Joanne Frail was actually jailed in 2011 for eight months for contempt of court for befriending and exchanging Facebook messages, believe it or not, with a co-accused in a multi-million pound drug trial. This included discussions about deliberations that were continuing for uh, one of the co-accused after the woman that she was communicating with had been acquitted. So, you know, extraordinary situation you've got there. Juries are also supposed to be entirely anonymous. So what this Victorian jury did when they were impanelled wasn't ideal either. A juror was so excited about being impanelled on a jury that once they got into the jury room, took a selfie in the jury room and then put that on social media and tagged all of the other jurors. Now this created so many problems because jurors are meant to be anonymous. Before the trial even started, somebody had post, you know, had published the details that identify a juror. So the judge gave them a a rip-roaring civics lesson and then discharged them and started all over with a new jury. What a waste of time and money and for everybody. If you meet somebody and you become friends with somebody on jury service, great. We've had 20... I, there was a guy here about six months ago who said, I was here 20 years ago, I met my wife, my 
current wife, I met her in the jury pool room. She was really nervous that I was coming for jury service, you know, 20 years later, because the last time I was here, uh, I, I found the love of my life. Um, so, you know, we've had marriages out of jury service. And I'm sure before the internet, people went out for a beer after jury service. I mean, that's humans meeting. Of course, you're going to get along. Despite the matchmaking potential, jury service can be a rough experience. Chief Judge Peter Kidd. It's often apparent to us that uh, a number of members of the jury find their job challenging or demanding uh, emotionally and intellectually. In fact, just like judges do, um, the subject matter of a lot of the cases that are presented to juries and upon which they must uh, render their verdict uh, can be very difficult. Sometimes they're asked to judge cases involving deaths. You might have a young 21-year-old in the dock who's otherwise of good character and had a terrific future, but you have a dead 21-year-old and their family in court, and the jury is they're being asked to render a verdict on that particular case. It's incredibly, or can be incredibly emotionally charged. So not only can the subject matter be difficult, but because members of the jury are, are taken or summoned randomly from various uh, sections of the community, often they've never had any experience with uh, court matters. They may not have had any experience with uh, some of the subject matter that we're talking about, apart from seeing it on TV, but it's a very different thing when you're in a courtroom and you're dealing with it live and you're being asked to judge it. Judges see that um, with sometimes the emotional responses of jury members during the trials. They, they can become uh, unsurprisingly emotional at times, especially during uh, intense and, and, and difficult um, uh, moments in evidence. Often, the toll that the case has taken upon a jury is evident at the time of verdict. I've been in court for a couple of verdicts. There's quite a tension in the room. Is that probable up on the bench? Absolutely. It's a, it's a, a moment often of significant human drama. Um, and the, the consequences are very substantial for... Uh, many people involved. Uh, the accused person is potentially... Uh, the consequences can be catastrophic. Uh, if found guilty of a serious offence, not only are they convicted of a serious criminal offence, but they may be facing significant jail time. So it's life-changing. Uh, if the case involves complainants or victims or, or the death of people and there are other family members there, um, then... Uh, the consequences for them are also grave. It's a very heavy moment. Uh, the jury is completing its solemn duty in returning its verdict. And whether they're convicting or acquitting, uh, it can be a very difficult exercise. It's clear that some jurors can be distressed at that. They can be distressed arising from that deliberation process in itself, so that's that in itself is another challenge to their mental well-being. It's often a unique, um, intense experience for people who are effectively removed from their daily lives 
uh, to engage in a, in a, a moment of great importance uh, with which they previously had very little familiarity. A juror support program offers all jurors free counselling, which is available for as long as the counsellor deems necessary. Research is also being conducted by the Victorian Institute for Forensic Medicine into the best way to present particularly gruesome evidence to juries. Despite all of the challenges that juries face, judges here overwhelmingly trust them. I do inherently trust uh, their judgment. Um, There haven't been very many occasions where I've walked away from a jury trial thinking that jury got it wrong. I have not had the experience of uh, disagreeing with with a jury verdict um, in the sense that I thought they got it wrong. I must admit I was a bit sceptical of of juries. I wasn't sure whether I'd want uh, my case to be judged by 12 ordinary members of the community. I wasn't sure how they would go about the task. And I must say over my 14 years as a judge, I've come to be really impressed by juries. I think they generally get it right. Sometimes they get it right for reasons that may not be apparent to us, but I think generally speaking, they bring the collective wisdom of many members of the community. And they bring uh, a collective assessment of character and how witnesses are behaving and, and where the truth lies. Gertie's Law is brought to you by the Supreme Court of Victoria. If you've got a question you'd like answered either by us, a judge, or someone else at the court, drop us an email at gertie at subcourt.vic.gov.au. That's G-E-R-T-I-E at S-U-P-C-O-U-R-T Send it in text or even better, an audio file so we can hear you ask the question. Next episode, we'll be endeavouring to answer them. And remember, the Supreme Court is a public building. Come in and see for yourself. You don't have to be a jury member to see how these trials play out.